You know, for a while, I felt like I was living out a Lovecraft novel. I felt like I, a feeble human, was trying to understand the workings of great ones, finding otherworldly horror seemingly invisible to everyone else, losing grip on reality as I inched ever closer to the eldritch truth. Instead of uncovering scraps of insight about extraplanar deities from crude, racist caricatures, I found horrible questions about the arcane workings of capitalism, questions with answers locked away behind administrators I couldn't interview, ethnographic studies that could take years on their own, and vacancy rates no sensible developer would disclose. But I'm still here. And although I haven't made sense of everything, my observations and experiences and notes are starting to come together. My name is Ajay Pandey, and this is Perfectly Nice Neighbors, an exploration of gentrification in the Boston area. Alright, here's how this will play out. I'll start with the concise version, and then I'll explain what I mean word by word. I will briefly define two activist-speak words, make four clarifications, and highlight one distinction. Then I will apply the definition to a few of our case studies. My hope is that this final episode, which compiles everything we've looked at over the past eight weeks, makes sense to you, the listener. From there, it's up to you to decide if you agree with me. So what is gentrification? Gentrification is the appropriation of an area defined by marginalized people, especially working class people and or people of color, by people with higher privilege, especially upper middle class to rich people and or white people. I'll start with the activists speak. Marginalized people. People who face oppression in contemporary Western or Westernized societies like the United States. Working class people, women, disabled people, queer people, etc. These flavors of marginalization can stack on top of each other, and they can mix in weird ways. Kimberly Crenshaw called it intersectionality, and you should too. People with privilege. Oh yes, we're talking about privilege. It's actually pretty simple. Folks who don't deal with a certain flavor of marginalization have a quiet benefit over the people who do deal with that certain flavor of marginalization. Peggy McIntosh had a neat analogy about an invisible knapsack a set of little buffs, like a plus one bonus to all persuasion checks when asking to speak to the manager. It doesn't guarantee success, but a plus one is always better than a plus zero. Now to the clarifications. Appropriation. I want to be very clear what I mean by that. When I say appropriation, I'm talking about more than land. I'm talking about land and culture and power structures. This is why I talk about an area being defined by marginalized people, not just populated. The key idea is that folks with power come in, take what they want, and dump the rest. One of my advisors, Professor Adams, pointed out how one-sided the discourse around gentrification sounds. This framework of the gentrifiers and the gentrified implies a sense of victimhood to the gentrified. There is merit to that, and I think the word appropriation somewhat addresses that. Appropriation isn't just doing things to helpless victims. It's also taking things that people made and developed without adequate compensation. Again, folks with power coming in, taking what they want, and dumping the rest. Race and class. 
I'm specifically highlighting race and class in this definition because racism and economic inequality are clear forces in gentrification, whereas the politics of gender, sexuality, immigration, and so on can get complicated. Remember that the gentrifiers in the South End are now pretty liberal with regards to gender and sexuality, and in some cases use their progressiveness on that front as a proxy for talking about race and class. Same deal with immigration status. If being an immigrant or a foreigner was fundamental to gentrification, Sylvie Tissot likely would not have been able to hang out with gentrifiers in the South End. Yes, I get that everything is complicated, but a lot of the forces of gentrification that I've identified over the summer boil down to race and class. Areas. Yes, I'm being very broad about where gentrification can happen. I don't think specifying urban areas adds to anything. For example, it's an open question whether Plymouth is gentrifying, and it's not urban. And reverse gentrification. Just to clear the air, reverse gentrification is as fake as reverse racism for the same reasons as reverse racism. If you subscribe to either idea, I think you're missing a few key points about imbalances in power, and I don't have the time to fill those gaps right now. And finally, the distinction. Mixed into the discourse around gentrification is the question of authenticity. What is the real Chelsea? What is the real South End? What does it mean to preserve the neighborhood? I think that's the wrong question to ask. You see, there's a distinction between taking over a place that people left behind and taking over a place that already had people there. Take Chelsea. Between the 1940s and 1980s, the population was declining as part of the trend now called white flight. When Latinx folks started moving in around the 70s, they were moving into a place people were leaving. To bring back the language I used in my definition, the Latinx immigrants moved into an area defined by people who weren't there anymore. These newcomers redefined Chelsea as a city of immigrants, as one of the few places in Massachusetts where the average person on the street is brown. Today, we have fancy new buildings that are, again, trying to redefine Chelsea, this time as not Boston, but basically Boston. The difference is that now people live in Chelsea, and judging from the new middle school coming up, they want to stay in Chelsea. That's where the appropriation comes in. The developers of the luxury apartments we examined last week aren't trying to add to the social fabric of Chelsea. They're trying to replace great swaths of it with something that would appeal to hipsters like me. They're coming in with money and thus power. They're taking what they want, proximity to Boston, and they're dumping the rest. This is why both the buildings we researched harped on their proximity to Boston instead of pointing out cool things in Chelsea defined by people in Chelsea. I hope this makes sense. Let's go back to our definition and I'll apply it to the stuff we've looked at so far. Gentrification is the appropriation of an area defined by marginalized people, especially working class people and or people of color, by people with higher privilege especially upper middle class to rich people and or white people. Let's put that to practice. The South End in Boston was originally defined by working class black and brown people with an activist streak. It was appropriated by upper middle class to rich white people who came in, took what they wanted, whether it was Victorian architecture or a carefully constructed image of diversity, and dumped the rest, pushing poor people and people of color into a corner where they can be watched for deviance. The South End was gentrified. Chelsea, Massachusetts is to a large degree defined by working class Latinx people. We are seeing new developments coming up which traditionally appeal to upper middle class to rich white people. These developments are coming in, taking what they can advertise, 
proximity to Boston, and dumping the rest by scarcely mentioning the people and culture actually in Chelsea. Chelsea is gentrifying. Franklin, Massachusetts is defined pretty heavily by middle-class Irish and Italian Catholics. There has been a huge ramp up in development that appeals to upper middle class to rich white people. But the old townies are still here. The Rome restaurant is still around and still full of longtime residents. St. Mary's Church is still around and still the center of a huge parish. This place is changing. It is being redefined from a forested backwater to an almost city geared to well off white families, but the longtime residents weren't forced out or forced into a corner. They're simply sharing the space with more people. Franklin is not gentrifying. See what I'm getting at? But then the question becomes, how do you stop all this? From there, I think the parallels between gentrification, performative allyship, and cultural appropriation come in. The common theme with all these processes is that marginalized people aren't allowed to have nice things, at least not without those things being taken and used for someone else's benefit. Same dynamic. Folks with power coming in, taking what they want, and dumping the rest. First things first, affordable housing should be a thing. People should be able to live reasonably close to the things they need as a modern human being and do so at a reasonable price. Jane Jacobs was on the right track with the Office of Dwelling Subsidies, however flawed an idea that may be. But that's not enough, because gentrification is more than just displacement. It's also inextricably linked to social and cultural trends. And because we all contribute to society and culture, it's up to us as individuals to address gentrification, the social phenomenon. And as far as I can tell, individuals can fight gentrification the same way they fight any other way oppression manifests. 1. Understand that marginalized people can think for themselves. 2. Think about what you take for granted. Think about your privilege, if you will. 3. Pay marginalized people for the work they do. So if you're moving into a neighborhood defined by working class people and or people of color, like go to restaurants run by working class people and people of color. Go to local barbershops. Join neighborhood associations, but don't try to take them over. Help address local issues in a tangible way. Like, it's hard to address alcoholism in a community, but replacing liquor stores with wine boutiques isn't the solution. As for taking fewer things for granted, Hari Kondabolu tweeted on July 8th that hipster coffee shops like the ones I gravitate to should maybe have a $1 option instead of taking for granted a certain level of wealth in the community. I've seen that in action. The Haymarket Cafe in Northampton, Massachusetts has a donation box called the Common Account to give discounted food to folks who need it. This is all very simple. And it's also very hard. But that's how morality works. It's easy to have a complicated moral system full of asterisks and contradictions. It's harder to have a simple framework and follow it to its uncomfortable ends. And even then, we're only human. We can only do so much. But being moral, thinking about what is moral, and helping others live and be moral is a commitment worth taking, if only because it's the only way the world improves. Thank you for listening to this podcast. It has been a joy to make. I hope this has been worth your time, and I wish you well, whomever and wherever you may be. Writing, music, narration, and production by Ajay Pandey. This is an independent study for UMass Amherst under the guidance of Professor Jenny Adams and Professor Sanjay Arwade. For questions, comments, critiques, and concerns, you can contact me at afande at umass.edu. Thank you for listening.